I'm Scott Galloway, and you're listening to 1K, the 1,000-second podcast. Every podcast is entertainment-focused and interview-driven. At the end of that time, we're done. 1K is affiliated with the 100 Words Film Festival and powered by Ortho Carolina. Let's put 1,000 seconds on the clock. Our guest today has written 25 plays and musicals. Six have been Broadway productions. Seven have played in London's West End. His first play, Lend Me a Tenor, won two Tonys. The Washington Post called it one of the classic comedies of the 20th century, and he's never looked back. He's been called America's preeminent comic playwright. He is Ken Ludwig. Ken, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our podcast is about brevity, which is really good for you because you're extremely busy right now. You've got plays in the West End and on Broadway, and you've got other shows coming up. You've been doing this for over 30 years. My question to you is, it seems to me you're you're hotter than ever. What is the source of your popularity? Well, that's kind of you to say so. And uh, I think it's because I've written over 25 plays, and after a certain amount of time, you build up a critical mass of plays, of your of your literary outpouring. And so there are more plays for people to produce and go to, and they have stayed, stayed alive. So I've been lucky. So now if someone goes to my catalog at Samuel French, they go, ooh, wh- which one of these can I do this season? So luckily they've been doing a lot of them. Well, it's got to be rewarding. Anytime you have a revival, you've got to feel great about that, right? I do. I do. And they get revived all the time. Lucky me. Lucky, lucky me. The first work I ever saw was Lend Me a Tenor, and I thought it was hilarious. You will stick to him like glue. You will not let him out of your sight. You will drive him to the rehearsal and then drive him back. You will give him whatever he wants except liquor and women. At the performance, at the performance, you will lead a spontaneous standing ovation. Then return him to the reception, keeping him sober with his hands to himself, at which point he can erupt it for all we care. It just was apparent to me that you knew comedy, you knew setups, you knew payoffs. Have you always been interested in uh, comedic writing? And, and if so, what were some of your influences? P.G. Woodhouse said it very well, which is he liked to write things that he would like to read. Mm. And that he <laughs> ran out of things to read that he loved. So he started writing them himself. And I feel that way very much so. I grew up in love with Kaufman and Hart. And then as I as I developed and started to read more, it, it I added Noel Coward and added Shaw and then finally discovered Shakespeare and I was off and running. Well, in Leading Ladies, the thing that jumped out to me as an audience member was just the movement, the way you had characters coming in and out. The one thing I can do is once I get a basic idea for a story, I see it all unfold in front of me. I see the characters. Once I have a sense of where the names of the people are, the setting, the set in front of me. Uh, it, it, when I, I finish writing it, it's all there on the paper. It's there. It's a blueprint for the show. So and you think of, you can start to interrupt. You see it spatially. You can see the people in relation to each other in your head. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. When you workshop it, I mean, are you close? Oh, and, and then, yeah, I was going to say, then, of course, when you get into rehearsal, you learn so much in rehearsal. I might add a whole new scene. I might find that the story needs a little better telling in places. But that doesn't mean in a sense that I've changed the, the, the central motion of the piece. And when I do those rewrites and write a new scene or a new section of a scene, again, I'll see it all moving and it'll move in those ways. And that's pretty well set because the story often depends on those entrances and exits. Is there any part of it that you enjoy 
more than others, the, the possibilities of the blank page or the fine-tuning of the script? Or what do you enjoy most about it? I suppose it's the blank page. I write longhand. So I sit in a corner, put my feet up, take a pencil, and I write on long yellow sheets. Wow. And I and I start scratching out a, a story. And once I've got a story and a character and then another character and then a, a sort of a general idea of a beginning, a middle, and an end of the story, then I'm in heaven. Then I can sketch down lines, dialogue between a couple of characters, four lines of dialogue, jump to the next scene, write some more scratch here, scratch there. It's a bit like saying oil painter he'll do preliminary sketches first and that's what i'm doing i'm sketching away sketching away and then when i've sketched and i've written about 40 or 50 of those pages i sit down and i write the play out longhand and then ultimately i type it up wow so longhand that is incredible you've never thought about changing up uh, and getting to the computer earlier i don't think i can i personally don't feel in touch with the piece as well that way okay. yeah yeah um, many of your works are adaptations, uh, Treasure Island and Three Musketeers and Baskerville. And when you take on an established work, a literary classic, how do you go about transforming it for the stage? I think the key to figuring out how to adapt something is is going down deep into the heart of the original and saying, what? how does it feel? Each play has been adapted differently. Treasure Island has a cast of about 12 or 15. It takes place on a pirate ship and in the Admiral Benbow Inn, and it's a boy's journey. And that had its own cast and its own lights and darks because of what the tale is. The tale itself is full of lights and darks. I've done about four or five adaptations since, and uh, Baskerville is an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the, the Conan Doyle story, mm -hmm. The Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm -hmm. And there I thought, hmm, it's such a big story uh, that I'll take the opposite tack. I think it would be fun to do it with five actors. So it's it's one actor playing Sherlock, one is Watson, and the other three actors play about 40 characters. Okay. So it becomes a roller coaster of sort of joy. And and so that, that piece dictated its form. The story you are about to witness is one of romance, tragedy, primal murder, and the urge for revenge. The latest adaptation you did is Murder on the Orient Express, which obviously has had a big revival with the film. But how did that come to be? How did you come upon that story? Well, uh, I uh, got a call from the um, Agatha Christie estate, sort of out of the blue. It went to my agent, and my agent passed it on to me. And um, they were kind enough to say, look, we haven't had an Agatha Christie uh, play on the stage for about 30 years. We've had discussions about who should adapt one of the books to the stage and we'd like you to do it. Uh, very flattering indeed. Oh my uh, gosh. And, and they said, you can pick anyone you want. <laughs> so I thought about it and I thought, well, why not go for the jewel and the crown? So yeah. I picked murder on the Orient Express and they said, great, great, great. So, um, I wrote a first draft, and then Agatha Christie's grandson, who runs the estate, and he's now retiring, and her great-grandson is taking over. And they, he, the grandson remembers Agatha so well. They would travel together in Europe, so that was just such a joy. They came over and talked about the script, and and, uh, and on we went. Now, I think one of the reasons they 
chose me was uh, hopefully because they like my plays, but also I had recently before that written a mystery for the stage, a comedy mystery, the first time I'd ever done that. And I won the Edgar Award, which is the best mystery of the year for that uh, called The Games of Foot. And then I think maybe that helped lead them to me. Well, so when you were working with them, obviously they had the pedigree, which was the connection to Agatha Christie. But, I mean, they're essentially, you know, her family. Did they give good notes? Did they have an understanding of the work? Yes, they give terrific notes. Wow. And it was really fun because the first time that Matthew Pritchard, her grandson, came over here to Washington to meet with me, he said uh, he, we, he had read it very carefully and, and we were discussing the, the play. And he said, you know, he says, I don't think Hercule would say that. <laughs> You know, Hercule to them was a member of the family. They'd lived with him all their lives. Wow. And so it was very t- touching. And, 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 and they were, you know, very kind to say, well, you know, you, you have to do what you think is right. 500 seconds. You don't have to take our advice. And uh, as I said to them, look, I, I'd be crazy not to. I'm not a sensitive author who says, oh, my God, my art. You must not touch my great art. I want your input. If there's anybody who knows Hercule Poirot, it's you. Right, right. Wow, that must have been an amazing experience. I, I can't imagine receiving that phone call that the Agatha Christie estate has selected you to be the playwright. It was really gratifying, and it's been a wonderful ride, and it looks like we're going to have a big West End production of the play coming up, too, so that's very exciting. Have you mm-hmm. noticed any differences between a Broadway audience and a West End audience? They do tend to laugh sometimes at different things or, or, or be excited by different things, but... Um, no, not really by and large. We have such an enormous country that what's really fun is when I have my plays done in Chicago or lately a, lot, a couple of my world premieres have been at the Old Globe in San Diego, uh, is going out to different, you know, 3,000 miles away in the United States. And audiences often are, are there for different reasons at different venues. At San Diego, at the Old Globe, they're there for great festivity. It's a festival. When you're in New York, everything's a little beadier and more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't find a, a great divide between the English and the Americans. I find it uh, uh, with simply the kind of audience that comes to my plays tends to be somewhat the same. You write words and then actors deliver them. Some really big, I mean, Alec Baldwin and Hal Holbrook and Anne Heche and Carol Burnett. Have they ever superseded what you hope the lines and scenes might portray? Yes, frequently. It's so exciting to get great actors in a room and then suddenly suddenly find there are things in the play that I didn't anticipate would work in that way. And they find a new way to approach a line mm. and a, a laugh in a little corner that I never heard before or something touching in a line the way they pause at a certain point. One of the greatest actresses I ever had the privilege to work with was Jane Cannell. Jane Cannell was a uh, comic actress who worked her way up all the way from the period of the village voice with Comden and Green. Uh, uh, talk about the history of the American mm-hmm. theater. And when I got to know her, she was in her, oh, late probably 60s and she was in i think five of my shows on broadway i just adored her and had the greatest comic timing of any actress i have ever known wow that moment when the play is done and it's now got its producer and its director and fortunately that's happening all the time now for me and i and i and i fly off to a new venue and we all get in the theater and we do that first reading and then get it on stage it's the most fun ever because actors are so great. They have so much heart. They're such a family. That's great. Frank Rich, who's a a tough critic and a New York Times critic, loved Crazy For You. Stay bumble-lip, stout fella, when you're in a stew. 
the end of his rave, he wrote, and this is a quote, the miracle has been worked here most ingeniously, though not exclusively, by an extraordinary choreographer named Susan Stroman and the playwright Ken Ludwig. My question, though, for you is, you work with choreographer Susan Stroman on a couple different projects. What is that dance, <laughs> and I mean that literally and metaphorically, what is that like? What I want the choreography to do is tell the story. Help me tell the story. If it means that I can cut a line or two, you know, books of musicals have to be very short and sharp. Sometimes you'll find there's five lines of dialogue between two songs. You don't notice it because it has helped you. You've told the story efficiently, and then you want that choreography, that musical number to continue and tell, tell the next beat of your story. Every playwright wants to have a play on Broadway. You've been fortunate enough to have that experience. Tell me, what was it like opening night, your first play on Broadway? Well, I, I was probably catatonic to the extent <laughs> that I remember it. It was Lend Me a Tenor. Yep. Andrew Lloyd Webber was producing the play. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, you've heard of him. He had produced it in London. We'd won a ton of awards. Then he brought it over to Broadway. Thanks to Andrew, we had tons of stars in the audience. All of Broadway and Hollywood was there, and it was my play. And it was there I was exposed to the world. And you know, I I wish I could say I remember a wonderful moment. I remember moments from other openings. I think my very first one, I, I was probably in a state of shock. What happened was it was a crazy situation. An English director. Um, Saw saw my this new play I'd written, uh, which was Lend Me a Tenor. It was called Opera Bouffe at the time. Took it to England, said I want to direct it. I want to show it to a producer friend, and the producer friend turned out to be Andrew Lloyd Webber. Two hundred seconds. I had only had up to that ever uh, some of my early plays in church basements, uh, and uh, suddenly I was flown over to London, and Andrew met me, and we go off to the. Uh, bar at the Savoy, and within six months, he has the show up in the West End. Oh. So I spent tons of time with Andrew. We go out to his place at Sidmonton, and we talk about rewrites and casting. And he was a, a greatly supportive and a terrific guy. And it was a wonderful way to really start my my, my that new phase for me in the theater of the in the commercial theater. Wow! From the church basement to the Savoy, that that, that might be your next play right there, Ken. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> um, all right, so you've written a book, "How to Teach Your Children Shakespeare," and I've got to tell you, as a father of three, that is a very lofty goal. I'm just trying to get my kids to appreciate the White Album. I don't know. <laughs> how, how do you tell me about the book and and what motivated it and how's it been received? It's been a bestseller. It has been um, very, very well received. It won the Falstaff Award as the best Shakespeare book. You know, there's nothing in any other art that is like Shakespeare is to literature. He's he's everything. Yeah. So I started teaching my daughter Shakespeare every Saturday and every Sunday. We'd spend an hour and memorize a little speech of Shakespeare. When she went off to college, she knew about a thousand lines of Shakespeare. So this is my story of how to do that with your kids. It seems to me with a lot of children, the language is a bit archaic for them, and they, they sometimes things don't translate. The stealth title of this book is How to Teach Yourself Shakespeare, uh, because most people uh, are afraid of Shakespeare. Yeah. And they go, oh, my gosh, it's archaic, and it sounds so complicated. But when you break it down and know what each word means, I know a bank where the wild time blows. I know a bank in a, where there's some water and a pretty grassy knoll where wild thyme, which is a flower, grows. I know a bank where the wild thyme 
time blows. You've now set a line of iambic pentameter, and you have uh, uh, learned a line of Shakespeare. And you learn the second one that rhymes with it. So much of Shakespeare rhymes, and it has rhythm to it. So kids just take to it, and it demystifies it. They're not frightened when they're young. 60 seconds. All right, Ken, so now we've come to the speed round. Are you ready? I'm ready. First question, who's the better detective, Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> well, since I have a show about Hercule and a show about Sherlock heading for Broadway in the West End, I will say it is the notional child of Hercule and Sherlock together. <laughs> what line from any of your plays has received the biggest laugh? In Lend Me a Tenor, when uh, the older lady, played by Jane Cannell in the original, walks seconds. in an incredible dress, and it was designed by William Ivy Long, and she says, how do I look? And the Phil Bosco character said, like the Chrysler building. Yes, perfect. Where do you do your best creative thinking? In my study, in a very comfortable chair with a pad of paper on my lap. What's your favorite Shakespeare-invented word or phrase? Fadge. F-A-D-G-E. It means how will this develop? What will be the next turn of the screw? Thanks for listening to 1K, powered by Ortho Carolina. If you like our show, please share it with a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. Special thanks to producer Jordan Snyder, music by Jason Hausman. I'm your host, Scott Galloway. We'll be back in your feed with a new episode next week that's just 604,800 seconds away.